Welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Monday morning, September the 16th. It is Daniel Wartman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios, 8 a.m. on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out on the West Coast. So if you're getting up early out there and going to work and you're watching or listening to this show, kudos to you. And all time zones and around the world. Thanks for uh, watching the show, following the show. Hope you had a great weekend. Our family spent the whole weekend at a um, youth soccer tournament. And um, it was hot. It was very hot. Lots of sun. Um, And... uh, you know, four games in two days, real healthy, um, don't understand uh, what we're trying to do here in American soccer. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely a bizarro world when it comes to the game, and uh, I think it's, you know, it's time for the Federation to, uh, to focus on the things it needs to focus on, which is actually creating an environment that matches their mission statement to make soccer the preeminent sport in America means that we need to govern it in a way so that it should become the preeminent sport in America. And that, that governance should include player development, youth soccer in terms of scheduling and tournaments etc was talking to a friend of mine this weekend over the weekend and um, about scheduling and you know I mentioned to him that I think I think the federation should step in and limit limit the the amount of participation that soccer clubs can uh take part in, in terms of tournament play. And, uh, the reason why, you know, I said that was, I I just feel like, you know, going and playing soccer tournaments on the weekend isn't, isn't a healthy step forward. And I think the Federation should, should play an active role in changing that. And, um, he was unsure about, you know, the, the Federation's ability to step in and do that because of the, the commerce clause and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, I think they do have the ability to do it. And uh, not only do I think they have the ability to do it, I think they can draw from Little League Baseball as um, inspiration. So several years ago, uh Dr. Andrews, who, if you watch anything sports-related and surgeries and medical and injuries, you, you might have heard of the name Dr. Andrews. Dr. Andrews, I believe, uh, it, I don't know if he still is, but I believe at one point in time he was uh, the surgeon and uh, kind of doctor on call for the Washington Redskins. Um, he is also heavily involved in in college athletics and other pro sports teams. He does a lot of uh, different surgeries, Tommy John surgeries and others, uh, and so so on and so forth. And Tommy John, I mean, excuse me, uh, Dr. Andrews worked with Little League Baseball on changing their policies for uh for leagues and for for teams to play and and basically that that mainly had to do with rest and pitch counts so on and so forth due to to player safety and uh and 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 protecting these these kids and i think that the u.s soccer federation could do something similar in uh in that vein by stepping in and working to create some policies that would shift the game away from long travel times, hotels, and playing three, four, five games in less than 48 hours and and shift the focus of the country into league play at, at all levels 
Um, I, I'm not opposed to an occasional tournament or an occasional festival um, format of, of matches. But when you have so many of these tournaments running and clubs just, you know, travel and play over and over and over again, I don't think that is a healthy way to go about it. And I think that the Federation could do something to help in that regard. And, uh, and I, I definitely would like to see that happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it was definitely, definitely hot, a lot going on. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I, I just think, I think for a development standpoint, from a health and safety standpoint, I think the country would be better off if, if the Federation stepped in and placed a higher priority on, um, on league play rather than allowing teams to just go and play tournament after tournament after tournament um, to get games. And, 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 you know, you watch these kids, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to go full out and play, you know, a game on back to back days. Imagine playing two or three games in a day and coming back and doing it again. Uh, I, I don't think the adults are thinking this thing through and uh, shame on us for that. Um, there is a, another lawsuit involving uh, U.S. soccer and MLS. This time it has to do with the MLS stadium contract. This is out of Nashville. Lawsuit filed in Davidson County Court late Thursday alleges illegal procurement of the contracts for Nashville's MLS stadium. Um, The lawsuit says that having some of the investors in the Nashville Soccer Club as members of the Metro panel that helped score the bid proposals for stadium construction is a conflict of interest and potentially illegal. You don't say MLS and U.S. Soccer and conflicts of interest. Wow. Call me surprised. The suit was filed Thursday afternoon by Leo Kwame Lillard, former Metro Nashville Councilman Dwayne Dominey, the Nashville Flea Market Vendors Association, and named, quote, the taxpayers and citizens of Nashville and Davidson County, end quote, as plaintiffs petitioners. The named defendant is Metro Nashville government. The suit alleges that with Metro naming at least three executives or employees of the investors group, Nashville Soccer Holdings, to Metro Nashville Procurement Department Evaluation Committees, who bore responsibility of evaluating bid proposals related to Major League Soccer Stadium. In so doing, according to the suit, three separate requests for quotations, those are RFQs in uh, in the bidding world, uh, working on uh, co- contracts like this, were evaluated with apparent bias. The suit also alleges that the contracts were awarded to companies with, quote, questionable, end quote, connections to the MLS team franchise owners. Two of the evaluation committees additionally engaged other employees or agents of NSH, appointing those individuals as non-voting technical advisors to provide assistance to the Metro Procurement Department Evaluation Committee in evaluation of the RFQ responses. So... When you read through, and you can read more and more of this, uh, this is uh, from WSMV.com. You can get more coverage there. Um, There's a lot of shady stuff going on here in terms of what this lawsuit alleges to be going on. And uh, and that, to me, is a a big red flag, big no-no. But it's, it's not surprising because... Major League Soccer, in in the way that it is set up with its single entity structure and its uh, incestuous relationship with the U.S. Soccer Federation, has created a a system of power and control, and that power and control means that they get exclusive access to the first division in American soccer, i.e., to themselves. 
and they use that to leverage cities and municipalities uh, in at, at times states to extort them for taxpayer dollars give us this or we're not going to consider you um you know we're 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 looking at coming to your city but your city's going to have to fork over you know tens of millions maybe more uh dollars in order for us to consider your your city as a new mls team and um that same philosophy mentality of conflicts of interest that is noted in this article exists within the Federation. You have Don Garber, who is on the board of directors for U.S. Soccer. He is also the CEO of Soccer United Marketing and the commissioner of Major League Soccer. The U.S. Soccer Federation votes on the contract that they have a no bid contract with Don Garber and his companies that he runs. They vote. Now they claim he's not in the room when they vote, but you can't tell me there's not undue influence when Don may not be in the room, but he walks out. It's the same thing that was going on several years ago. Sunil Galati was not paid by the U.S. Soccer Federation as president of U.S. Soccer. No, in fact, he was paid by Bob Kraft to be an employee of the New England Revolution of Major League Soccer. It's not a surprise to see where the Federation is in regards to its professional league standards, its rules, etc. And then you read a report about Nashville and things going on it's a culture here and i'm not saying mls is directly to blame on the nashville situation but what i'm saying is there are similarities between the two in the way that they go about uh their business and nashville mls is following suit just like their uh their their parent company organization that they're trying to join in uh, major league soccer that's that's the way of doing business it's not a good way of doing business but it's how they go about doing their business and i think um i think that's a big problem at the federation level with the conflicts of interest and there there are lawsuits surrounding that as well uh including antitrust and we're gonna we're gonna get into some of that in in just a little bit uh but before we do our sponsor this half hour is ducktick brand d-u-k-t-i-g brand.com they are the makers of journals notebooks uh waterproof paper for for working outdoors uh Really, really cool products. Check them out at ducticbrand.com. And when you do, use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your order. Again, that is D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com, ducticbrand.com. And use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your order. We'll be right back with Carter Karishner after a word from our sponsors.
Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Monday morning. And we are pleased to be joined by a friend of the show, Cardic Karishner. How are you this morning? I'm great, Dan. How are you? I am doing well. Hey, before we get into all things American soccer and, and world soccer related, um, you guys down there in South Florida, uh, as I know well, uh, being in, in a hurricane zone myself, have been doing some work uh, with our neighbors to the east in Bermuda. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you guys have been trying to do down there in South Florida and in terms of support and uh, in, in the situation there uh, on the ground in terms of helping out our neighbors? Yeah, so our neighbors in the Bahamas obviously got hit uh, just epically hard by Hurricane Dorian. I mean, we have seen uh, hurricanes ravage the United States. I mean, we have just celebrated the 50th anniversary of Hurricane Camille, which um, those of you on the Gulf Coast know all about. Um, and uh, it, it, this came about two weeks after that 50th anniversary. And unlike Camille, which which hit as a Cat 5, much like this storm, um, it didn't move quickly through um, the, uh, north and, and, and weakened. This storm lingered and sat over Grand Bahama Island and sat over uh, the Abacos for about 48 hours. And there's total devastation there, as I think most of the listeners know, having watched uh, the television coverage and, and the news pictures. So what we've done in South Florida is it seems like the whole community has been activated. Um, the whole uh, metropolitan area from West Palm Beach South through Miami uh, there are collection points at any restaurant you go to, any store you go to. There are uh, constantly charity relief efforts uh, going on. Uh, and we've seen some of the uh, um, local elected officials really get involved. And um, every nonprofit is involved in, in one respect or another. And at Miami FC, uh, Daniel, what we've done is we've... Uh, not only had a collection point at, at, at the match against uh, Philadelphia Fury, the Nissan match yesterday, but uh, we've got a unique coaching auction uh, where uh, a winner, and the, all the money goes to Bahamian Relief, uh, the winner will be able to sit on Paul Daglish's coaching staff uh, for a day, or actually for two days, the, the, the uh, training session before a match, and then um, game day, game of their choice, home game of their choice, and we'll get... Um, all the all the swag associated with being a manager, if you want to call it that, the tracksuit with the, with your initials, et cetera, uh, with the Miami FC uh, official gear or coaching gear to, uh, that the technical staff wears. So that's a really cool thing for soccer fans, and uh, the money goes to obviously a you know a, a really noble cause and something that everybody is trying to lend a helping hand in. So that's something we're doing at Miami FC. If you want information about that auction, go to MiamiFC.com. And um, and the auction ends Thursday, the nineteenth, at seven p.m. Eastern. Fantastic stuff! Uh, again, check out MiamiFC.com, and you can get some more information there. Or you can uh, even do one step further, and that is to actually help out uh, with the relief efforts. Yes. Um, and uh, as Cardick mentioned, I I live in a hurricane zone myself, and. Uh, well aware of the, uh, the 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 ramifications of a storm and and what it does uh, to communities and and you know it's it's easy to forget that uh, you know a named storm system comes through and you're you know a few weeks later it's like oh, okay well I guess they're back to normal and uh, it's it's rarely that the case it's usually years and sometimes. Uh, a decade or more before certain areas recover and some places never do. So, um, you know, it, it is, uh, just a tragic situation over there and, uh, and we should try to do everything we can to help for sure. So, um, getting into the, um, the soccer of, uh, the show with you, um, Miami FC recently uh, began its foray into NISA, and uh, you, you guys ho hosted the Philadelphia uh, Fury, and um, they have uh, formerly of the ASL, I believe, and um, and and matched up. Uh, what was uh, what was the match like? And uh, new league, some new faces, obviously a new uh, new team, new competition. Uh, what did you observe uh, in the match this weekend? 
Yeah, so first off, I think the league is really well-structured. Um, I'm, I'm pleased with how the league is proceeding in terms of being an independent league, respecting the independence of clubs, but, but giving some sort of framework and, and a set of standards that they want all their clubs uh, to meet. And I think that that's what essentially a league office should do. And it should be a facilitator for uh, groups of independent clubs. I mean, my goal would be to see the thing built out. They say they're the National Independent Soccer Association. It would be great to have a pyramid. It would be great to have fan ownership, which uh, they've at least publicly embraced. Um, I'm a board member. I'm vice president of a, of a supporters own team here in South Florida, Hammersy FC. Uh, we just played yesterday in, in our local league against another supporters own team, uh, the Palm Beach, uh, the, uh, the Breakers AFC of, of the West Palm Beach area, uh, which I, this fan ownership idea and what we see in community clubs in places like Germany is really catching on on the grassroots in the United States. So I'm pretty excited by the fact that NISA uh, has embraced that, unlike MLS and USL. I mean, USL went so far as to say when, um, remember, the Sounders Trust um, tried to buy a percentage of Sounders, too, which is now the Tacoma Defiance, um, that uh, they couldn't put a member of uh, member of the, the supporters group or the supporters trust um, for the Seattle Sounders on the board of that club in USL. Um and then they ended up selling their, and they were going to redevelop to go, the, the, the training sites, uh, Starfire and Tukawilla, and make all those changes to the two team based on fan participation and fan ownership. And USL blocked it. So um, I'm very, very upbeat that NISA has, at least to this point, embraced that. Um, additionally, I think what we're seeing is a league, which is kind of a, uneven at the start. Yesterday's match, Miami FC won eight to one. Um, Philadelphia had some really good moments in the match, but they're a team that's um, been more hastily put together. Miami FC, the same unit has been together. Some of the guys have been together since the NASL days, going back to 20, 2017, uh, particularly Ariel Martinez and Dylan Mares, uh, who are two of the stars. But um, Martinez goes back to 16 on the team, but he and Mares have been playing together is a point since 17. Um, and the rest of the team, the entire, everybody who, who featured yesterday was on the team in the NPSL season. And obviously the team won the NPSL National Championship. So they've been together since, since January or February, whereas Philly was kind of late, hastily and, and put together late. Um, so I think they'll get better. Uh, I've been very impressed. The Oakland-Cal uh, United game uh, from, I think it now was two weeks ago. Yeah, it was actually from two weeks ago because I was battening down the hatches for Hurricane Dorian at the time since back on the hurricane theme, Dan, that was an outstanding match. I mean, um, if people thought that the quality of playing NISA wouldn't be, um, w w wouldn't appear like it was a professional league and thought, oh, it's going to be just uh, another amateur league dressed up, uh, you know, with a little better promotion as a professional league, should have watched that match. That match could have very easily substituted for any USL match. Um, so there are some positive signs early on for NISA and things that, that um, I'm encouraged about. And like I said, the league office is um, is giving some structure and some degree of minimum standard to, um, to how they want to set things up. But they are more than anything respecting the independence of clubs. And uh, last thing I'll mention is that they've done a deal with Hummel um, for apparel, for, um, for outfitting, for kits, et cetera, that allows teams the flexibility to take advantage of that but if they don't want to use Hummel and they're using Nike or they're using uh, 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 Puma or whoever, uh, they can continue to do that. So that's something very different than we see with a lot of American sports franchise-based leagues, uh, including the two, uh, the two leagues in this country. Uh, USL doesn't have an exclusive outfitter deal, but there are a lot of other things that are very restrictive about USL. So that's, that's very, very encouraging for me. A lot of the early signs are good. So the, the the league just kicking off, uh, and and it you know there were there were some delays in terms of you know launch dates and and when they originally were wanting to kick off was uh, uh, September of last year and things kept getting bumped and and now they they finally gotten going um, this fall. 
in in the uh, early going, uh, you mentioned there's some things that you've been surprised about, pleasantly surprised about. Where what are some things? And and this this may not be Nisa specific, but I do think it's helpful for the audience to consider. Um, this is the first time in some years that we've had a professionally sanctioned league. Um, that is unaffiliated with existing leagues. So uh, I am throwing out the USL League One because it's part of the USL organization that was already operating in uh, in Division Two with the USL rebrand of, of calling it uh, the USL Championship. So this is the first new professional league that is not affiliated with Major League Soccer or the USL and it's a, it's its own standalone entity. And so I think it is, I think it's helpful for the audience to, to, to kind of take a look and what are some learning lessons about uh, where the league is and, 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 and launching and, and what, where, what are some areas where you think the league as it continues to mature um, can, can make some progress? Uh, is it match day experience? Is it promotions? communications what are you seeing in the early on that there's some opportunity for growth there yeah there's definitely opportunity for growth i think one of the things you hit on right at the at the beginning of that daniel which was they were supposed to launch last september right and uh, they've ended up launching a year later which had people many people dubious as to whether they would actually kick a ball i think kicking a ball i go back to that oakland cal united game i mentioned i think kicking a ball change a lot of people's perceptions of what would happen here. I think the the level of promotion um, has to improve and it will improve. I think there, I, I, I can't stress this enough. People are looking at NISA now and saying, well, it doesn't look like USL League One or USL uh, in terms of promotion and in terms of the presence on the web and, and uh, the, the streaming platforms, et cetera. Um, although actually the streams of games have been quite good. And I think maybe there's a judgment that comes of my Pujo that you don't uh, make a VSPN plus, but the streams I've found with my Pujo, who, who needs to partner with are only as good as, you know, whoever's inputting, you know, it's a pretty open ended platform. So if you, if you have bad equipment and you're not streaming properly from your production end, um, then it comes out badly. USL has, in USL fashion, centralized all their production. They have centralized all their television streams uh, to the point where they're handpicking the people who commentate games. Um, they're even more, uh, I, I, I'm trying to think of the term here, they're even more restrictive about that than MLS. I mean, MLS gives the teams a fair amount of autonomy on who they select to work um, and broadcast matches. Uh, if they run afoul of Don Garber or MLS, you know, no doubt they're taking off the broadcast because it's a single entity league. But um, my understanding is USL is even stricter about that and very, very controlling about what you can say on the air. So NISA, that's a, that's another positive. And I think those streams have been pretty good. But yeah, the the um, outward promotion of the league can get better. It will get better. And I'm thinking when Detroit and Chattanooga come over in, in – uh, the spring of next year. And we've already seen them, or at least Detroit play uh, an exhibition match against an ESA team uh, in their off week from the NPSL members cup. You will see a higher level of everything because uh, Oakland has really helped move the needle forward with Nisa. Um, perhaps I'm biased here. Um, those who don't know, <laughs> um, involved in the communications operation at Miami FC, in, in addition to all my writing responsibilities and podcasting, um, I think we've helped move the, move the bar forward. Um, obviously, we are a former NASL team, uh, the only one in NISA. So um, we had an existing infrastructure, which the other NISA teams have had to build on their own. Um, and then Chattanooga and Detroit, when they come in, I've been very impressed with Cal United. I've been very impressed with Stumptown. There are some other teams that aren't quite at that level of promotion or communication, um, but hopefully we'll get there. One other note, Daniel, and I know this is something that you, Chris Kessel, and so many others in the independent soccer movement talk about. Um, I think NISA, once they get their feet on the ground, have to lead. And by leading, I mean bringing together the disparate elements of independent clubs 
that are sitting in amateur leagues all over the country, regional amateur leagues, and then your two national leagues, the NPSL and UPSL. And I get, I get the impression that the new NPSL management, uh, the people on the board now are very open to working with other leagues in a way that maybe previous people in that league weren't. Now, they're not necessarily open, thankfully, uh, I, from my perspective, to working with USLs, but they are open to working with other, um, other independent leagues. UPSL would be the one where there's a question mark. They, um, they have their own kind of uh, model, uh, and their model is a little, even though they're independent, their model is a little bit more like the USL model than NPSLs or NISAs or the Gulf Coast Premier League or you know the, the, the Great Lakes League, et cetera, uh, than these other uh, independent leagues. However, I think that um, lawsuit, Dan, that the USL filed against them may have softened them towards everybody else in the independent soccer world. At least we can, we can hope that that's the case. Certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think one of the things that I look at on a macro level, um, not, not digging into the micro for a second, but just looking at the macro, it is important for this project to not just launch, which we've seen the launch, but to, you know, whatever your starting point is at this point is what it is, right? We could all go back and say, you know, uh, would have, could have, should have, uh, you know, um, I mean, are there things if different people were in charge, maybe we're done differently, whatever. I mean, that, that's just part of life, right? Uh, everybody's got their own ideas, their own opinions. So the starting point is where it is. Now, where do we go from here? Where does it build from here? And I think that is the piece that uh, I'm most interested in uh, in terms of building. And, uh, and, and, I, and I want to, uh, for a moment, get into this part of the conversation, which you touched on, uh, but I, w- I really want to focus on and hammer down for just a moment uh, with you about, and that is this, centralized control versus centralized standards. And there's a big difference here uh, that I think the American soccer public needs to understand. I am all for standards. I am all for excellence, doing things in excellence um, and in raising standards in, in, you know, in conjunction with my counterparts in a league to make sure that our product on the field, our product off the field is excellent, uh, that we have a consistency of fan experience, community experience, community engagement across our league. When you, you know, get into public relations, communications, uh, everything is, you know, top notch uh, across the board. And, and I want to leave American soccer for just a moment and, and look at some easy, low-hanging fruit examples. Um, and, and I am by no means saying that, that the scale or the amount of money in NISA is anywhere near, at this point, uh, the Premier League in England. But if you look back, if you just do a little bit of work on your own, if you're unfamiliar, the, the, the old English first division uh, was in shambles. It was, they were losing their best players. The, the quality of play was not good. The television production wasn't great. And they decided uh, to, you know, almost really start over and say, we can do this better. And, and you can, you can get into some of the revenue sharing and some of the other things that maybe you don't like or whatever. And and I don't want to get sidetracked on that. I just want to use them as an example of the premier league when it launched in the early nineties to where it is today. It is, it is the most visible league in the world. And the, the, the television production and the communications and the marketing and the branding and the consistency that came from that came from raised standards, not centralized control, meaning that the clubs are working together on behalf of of each other in terms of their agreements and what they want to try to do. It does not mean that 
you know, the same amount of money that uh, that that Manchester City or Liverpool are putting into certain areas of their club that Norwich is having to match or or is is expected to do. But there is a baseline standard that is raising the tide for all of the boats in terms of operations on and off the field. So getting back to American soccer here, when you look at Major League Soccer and you look at the USL, uh, whether that's the championship or League One, both entities and the, the respective leagues have centralized control. It's not just standards, but your central office is in charge. You are not allowed to to do uh, things locally without permission from the central office. NISA is not set up that way. NISA is set up where it's it's clubs over leagues in terms of execution. Now you have to balance, and this is where and, and this is where I want to focus here. You have to balance um, you know, raising the standards, the standards of excellence on and off the field, uh, with the centralized control. Uh, and this is where a lot of people go back and forth. How do we raise the standards of excellence while not getting too uh, over controlled from from a central office standpoint and yet still reach that level of excellence? And the argument from the Don Garber types is it's impossible to do. You look around the world, you see that it is possible to do. It's just not done here. What do you see uh, with NISA right now and then where it's going and where it can go in terms of raising the standards on and off the field for for, for the public and, and the players and the clubs themselves? Yeah, great, great, great uh, points there, Dan. Um, the Premier League example is actually what we applied at NASL when we launched that league. I was involved with launching that league about 10 years ago. Uh, they were existing clubs, by and large, there were one or two that weren't, but they were existing clubs that had been um, effectively uh, squashed in the USL structure. The, the, the majority of clubs that, that decided to start the um, the NASL. And, the, and this is similar to what happened in England. You mentioned the first division was failing. There were also a lot of disputes between club and league um, in, in England at the time. And uh, it was the leaders of the big clubs uh, at the time, Everton, Arsenal, Liverpool, Tottenham, and, and Manchester United that got together and then sold this to the other uh, clubs that were in the first division at the time, but said, we need to break away and do our own thing with the support of the FA. Now, this is why NASL may not have had as much success in it as the Premier League has. I mean, it, it would have been difficult to have that level of success, let's just be honest. But still, um, we were never able to implement some of the things we wanted to do in NASL, which were based on how the Premier League had been created or how other um, re- rebirths, if you want to call it that, of, of club-based leagues in Europe um, had taken place because we had a federation in this country that was actively hostile after a certain point. Initially, they weren't. Uh, it has to be noted. The USSF did not, um, in the late uh, 2009, 2010, 2011 time period, they weren't thrilled with what USL was doing. Um, and then USL signed an affiliate agreement with MLS and everything seemed to change. But at the time, they were concerned that USL was very um, restrictive and also very, you know, creating a lot of instability in the lower divisions, uh, which now apparently they're not concerned about. There are still USL clubs that go out of business all the time. People seem to pretend as if it's a very, very stable league. And the fail rate uh, is not. And when you know you have a Bari situation like we had in, in England, oh well, that's what happens with promotion and relegation. These people say, but there were USL teams. There were far more USL teams that fail than lower division teams in open systems in major industrialized countries in the West. That's just a reality, and uh, they disappear without people noticing. Uh, they disappear um, without USL ever acknowledging they disappear. Uh, but there will be teams. I predict that fail after this season. There will be teams that fail after next season. It's just that we've maybe we've become uh, desensitized to it. Um, you're right about the standards. So this is something very, very important. In acting like a league at NASL, we had 
some very high minimum standards, which were higher than what USL were putting in place at the time. USL was a centrally controlled league that um, did not put in place sort of broadcast standards, um, operation standards for, for the way a match should look, uh, and uh, even stadium standards uh, that we did. Now, the people will say, well, doesn't that sound like the PLS? No. What we did as a league was our clubs getting together, our owners saying this is what we want to see in order to protect our business and our investment and grow our league from teams we bring in as expansion teams and teams that are existing in this league and maybe falling behind. It was all about making the product more compelling and making the business stronger. Um, but it was decided by those in the room, Daniel. This is so important. It was decided by the NASL owners. The same thing will happen in NISA. Those standards, um, the standards, uh, unfortunately, there's some standards that NISA is just having to abide by because of the PLS because otherwise NISA will lose sanctioning after one season. So, uh, But there are other standards which will be determined by the owners, owners in the room. This is very, very different than the PLS which is determined arbitrarily by U.S. soccer. Um, who knows what the process is by which they come up with that. And two, uh, the centralized control where USL centralizes your television production and every broadcast looks the same and every broadcast sounds the same and every commentator is saying the same thing and they're all essentially glorifying the league, right, and the product. And every team sends out the same press release at the same time Synchronized. It says in it, USL is one of the uh, uh, the most prominent football leagues in the world, which anyone who knows anything about this sport knows isn't true. Yet I see that in every release from that league. I mean, even MLS doesn't make that boast. As crazy as we think MLS is at times. So um, there is a very, very big difference between standards, which are determined by owners in an independent league who own independent clubs when they get together and say, hey, this is how we want to govern our league, protect our business, improve our product versus standards that come from uh, a league in USL that is a privately held league, which the owners of the clubs have no stake in and um, quite frankly has an independent business model that is unaffected by whether clubs fail or whether they succeed. Exactly. And and I think when, we, when you look at the decision-making process, uh, you hit on it right there at the end. That That is what I think people need to understand, which is the way forward is that those stakeholders are also the decision-makers. They are effectively, you know, the board of governors, the board of directors. They hire the central office. They hire the commissioner. The commissioner, the central office works on behalf of the clubs, it's it's more like uh, getting a real estate agent to sell your house, get a realtor to sell your house. They're working for you rather than the other way around. It's not like you go and hire a realtor and once you sign the paper, it's like, okay, now the realtor's in charge. Uh, and you're, you know, yeah, you're the homeowner. Yeah. You, you, you have the mortgage and all of that, but the realtor makes all the rules. They do the deals. You have to take whatever they give you, no matter what, that's not how that process works. That's how centralized control works though. Uh, looking at major league soccer and the USL and, and, and so in that quest to, to put the power back in the hands of the independent clubs, NISA is, is the only professionally sanctioned league at this point in American soccer that has that in place so that the clubs have a say in what's going on. Um, and, and I think, I think, a lot of people don't realize that when, when it comes to situations like, you know, Bury in, in England that uh, had a failure, are there, are there things that the league and, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, English football league itself, uh, could have done differently, et cetera. Absolutely. However, I am, I am a big believer that you have to have, 
self-responsibility. Like it's on you as well. Uh, if, if not more on you, you got to be accountable. Uh, and so your club, the ownership and the leadership of a club in an open system, uh, if you make bad choices, I feel terrible for the supporters, but the, the ownership and the leadership are the ones who are ultimately accountable, not everybody else. Now, should the league have done some things to maybe help or could have helped in some ways? Possibly so. That is a very different proposition when you have the ability to make better choices in an open system. That's a very different situation than being in a closed system and you want to try to do some things differently that maybe contextually works better for your city, your community, etc. And you're not allowed. You're not allowed to do certain things because it's centralized control from the league. When you get into a one-size-fits-all uh, setup, and you look at a country as large geographically, but also population, diversity, etc., in terms of our cities and our communities and different regions around this country, and think that one one version, one type uh, of a of a team setup with centralized control is going to work everywhere. It's not. It hasn't been. Major League Soccer still not uh, anywhere near where it could be uh, because of that 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 problem same thing goes with usl and as you mentioned so many have failed major league soccer people forget early 2000s had failed it had absolutely failed it was shutting down there was three owners uh that owned all of the teams everything was going under and u.s soccer did a no no bid contract deal helped create soccer united marketing to to keep mls afloat it's why recently on the show carter i've been talking about what is the worldview of Major League Soccer? Their worldview is power and control, which gives them the, the leverage uh, over access to the top. Like everything for them starts and ends with power and control. Without power and control, they don't like where they're at. They, they, they want that over everything. They would sacrifice money to, to have power and control. On the flip side, the Federation... Their worldview when it comes to Major League Soccer is that MLS must succeed no matter what. So we see that with the DA rules. We see that with other aspects between the relationship of U.S. soccer and MLS. When I look at NISA and I look at these clubs, yes, it's it's a new beginning. Um, and, and there are learning lessons to go along the way. But at the same time, one of the core pieces that I think is so important to this project is that independent clubs are the ones that have the voice in terms of moving forward, setting rules, setting the future and the path, which to me means that what you saw in the early 90s with the creation of the Premier League becomes, I'm not going to say at this point possible for Nisa to reach the premier league level. Cause there's a long way to go to get anywhere near that conversation, but that self direction, self determination in place means that they could do a lot of things uh, in terms of progress standards, etc., because they're the ones ultimately making that decision, which leads me to this question to you. And I've heard this behind the scenes uh, recently as well, that there are a lot of teams not in NISA right now in ownership groups that are giving NISA a very serious look in terms of the growth prospect of the league. What are you hearing on that front? Yeah, same thing, Daniel. In fact, I would add to that that there might be one or two USL teams that are um, considering that. I, I don't want to say they're seriously considering it now, but are intrigued by the prospect uh, once their franchise agreement. Remember, this is the other thing about USL. You have these franchise agreements that um, uh, expire at a certain point, right? And um, uh, they're constantly kind of changing. They're moving targets in those franchise agreements. MLS in terms of how they bring people into a single entity league because of that soccer United marketing piece. And as you said, you've got the, uh, the no bid contract with us soccer. Uh, it was started soccer United marketing's initial success was because of 
FIFA uh, uh, tipping the scale in their favor, thanks to Chuck, thanks to Chuck Blazer's intervention, when they took a competitive bid from NBC Universal to win World Cup rights and tabled that in favor of a Soccer United marketing bid to essentially subsidize MLS with uh, with, with, with uh, uh, FIFA's help. Um, and then, of course, this DA piece now, which is really perhaps creating a tipping point in, in people's understanding of the relationship between the Federation and MLS, uh, because there's no bigger, um, bigger entity that can fight Major League Soccer and, and U.S. Soccer and Soccer United Marketing than the collective forces of it of well-funded established youth clubs in this country. But, um, you know, putting that all, uh, you know, just ke keeping that as background for a minute. Yeah. There are a number of independent clubs in UPSL and NPSL seriously considering MISA. I think you'll see one or two more come online, uh, in 2019 beyond or in 2020, uh, to, to start playing 2020 beyond just Chattanooga and Detroit that have been announced, um, at UPSL and NPSL clubs, in addition, I think there's some clubs that want to build out long-term that are in smaller regional leagues that see the NISA model as very intriguing. I mentioned the Palm Beach Breakers earlier um, here in South Florida, in the West Palm area, that played uh, my club, Himmershi, uh, which is a kind of a Phoenix club that rose after the, the collapse of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. Um, they are looking for owners that would allow them to meet the PLS standards but maintain fan ownership because they are a supporter-owned club um, that has some kind of, you know, a little bit of financial backing from their supporters uh, to, to, to join NISA. Uh, this is the one challenge, though, because NISA wants to embrace fan ownership. They want to embrace the idea of supporter member-run clubs, which is, by the way, the standard in German football. I hear from all these MLS apologists that it can't happen in the It can't happen at a high level professionally. The Bundesliga... It is the best attended league in the world in any sport that isn't the NFL. So, and their clubs are entirely membership based. Like, you know, you could argue about uh, RB Leipzig and, and Bayer Leverkusen, you know, one or the, the two or three corporate clubs in that structure. Um, but the rest of the clubs are all member based. Um, but the problem here is the, the one obstacle NISA faces with this is the PLS maintaining sanctioning while allowing these, these supporter-led clubs, supporter-driven clubs, like uh, Palm Beach Breakers, Himmershia, others, uh, into your structure. That, I think, is a challenge. Um, let's hope we can figure that out because it would be so good for the culture of American soccer to have these clubs in a professional league or in an association of uh, independent clubs that includes professional teams. Yeah, I mean, look, I think when you look at the the PLS and uh, and and I need to do a, a you know a full show on the PLS to really explain all of the parameters of you know what what is uh, what is so bad about it in the way that it's currently written. Um, but one one P, if I had to pick one element of the U.S. Soccer Professional League standards to throw out, it would be ownership net worth. Um, there are other things that I don't like in terms of Metro market size and others, but even more than that, I think it's the, the ownership net worth piece, because I, I think, um, you know, the focus of a professional league standard should be that you should, you should have to prove as a club that you can be operationally viable and that could come as uh proof by having you know a billionaire owner so that could definitely be one one of the ways to satisfy club viability uh, but i do believe that there there's more than one way to prove your club is viable just because you have money doesn't mean you know how to run a soccer club we see that time and yeah. time again um around the world but uh, but even more so here in the u.s so i lived out with the four Lauderdale strikers dan i mean we talked about him or she forming us supporters i worked for the strikers as as did a number of the people who who created him or she fc we uh experienced a club failing with an ownership group worth $700 million. And it failed because they plainly did not understand how to run a football club or soccer club. Yeah. I mean, you know, having net worth and having a lot of money doesn't mean you, you know how to run every business that you're in. 
Um, so I, I just think it's a, I think it's actually a really poor way to, to, to prove club viability that you have a really big piggy bank. Um, but if, if that's the way you want to do it, you want to prove, you know, that your club can pay its bills. I can say, Hey, I've got 700 million or I'm worth 700 million. Fine. Um, I I'm okay with, with that being one of the ways to prove your club is financially viable, but I do think there's more than, than, than that way to do it. And by changing that one rule, you could open the floodgates up to what could happen potentially, uh, in terms of having more clubs, uh, be viable professionally because they, they could come up with other ways you would have market innovation. And one of those market innovations could be supporter owned. It could be uh, plurality of owners. Um, so you may have, you know, 10 guys each worth, you know, $10 million, but now all of a sudden they can run a club in the second division because they're not, they're not having to find the one owner, um, you know, worth 20 million, uh, or something like that. So you have just by changing that rule when it comes to club viability, I do think it would, it would, it would make a big impact. And there, there are other rules I would tweak or change, um, which, you know, to me are written right now for, for closed leagues, uh, and not for, uh, open leagues. And, and so, you know, there, there's some elements uh, to that, that I think needs to get looked at as well as, um, and someone brought this to my attention recently and I, I I've been doing a little bit of study on this, but, uh, I need to study it some more that there's actually a clause in there that, that treats single entity leagues different than a league like NISA when it comes to the professional league standards. So I think that needs another look at as well. So, um, when you look at the landscape of American soccer wrapping up here, um, we see all the lawsuits, we see all the legal action. It keeps coming like every, Every day you turn, uh, you know, you turn the page and you find another lawsuit. Uh, the U.S. Women's National Team, Hope Solo, um, the NASL. You see the the solidarity payment, training compensation, all of these different, you know, uh, scenarios playing out over and over again. Um, I look at this as a as a cul culmination of bad leadership and bad governance, and um, and dysfunction has has been allowed to exist at the highest levels of U.S. soccer for so long that we are now seeing the ramifications of that as people are starting to get more and more fed up. Uh, in your view, do you see more lawsuits uh, before we we start to see some positive change? Um, or more of the same or, or do you see the federation start to you know look itself in the mirror at the highest levels and go we're we're missing the mark here we've got to we've got to make some changes and we've got to at least start to figure out a way forward uh by addressing some of these issues uh before it's too late where, where, what do you see in that uh on a macro level the last time I was on your show, uh, Dan, and, and when we, we uh, met at the FIFA conference, uh, I was optimistic that that they would um, see themselves in the mirror with all these lawsuits and realize they had to they had to facilitate their role as the governing body in the sport a little differently and engage all the stakeholders because they were getting sued constantly. What we have seen since makes me believe that that will never happen, at least with this management team at U.S. Soccer. Because you've had the uh, addition of uh, two different lawsuits by relevant sports. Uh, this last one, very compelling in its discussion of FIFA's involvement in a conspiracy with uh, an alleged conspiracy with Soccer United Marketing and U.S. Soccer. And you have seen the absolute tone deaf reaction from the Federation towards the women's national team. I mean, I, I can't I, you, you, you cannot have blundered as badly as they have blundered in, in, in their PR, um, the way they handled this thing publicly, uh, without being really obstinate and really in your own um, myopic world. Because uh, there is nobody out there, except for people who are tied to the Federation or tied to Major League Soccer or have some sort of um, just a, a, a agenda to be a provocateur, uh, who do not see who does not see now uh, all of the points that the women's national team have made in their lawsuit are um, are valid 
based almost entirely, you don't even have to go into mediation or into a courtroom, on the way U.S. soccer has reacted to it. Uh, and even the way the men's national team players have now embraced the cause of the women's national team and said, hey, by the way, our CBA has expired. What, what are you going to handle that with us? So um, I, I, I've just been, and I think everybody else has been, Dan, just flabbergasted by their tone deafness and their, um, their continuing recitation of numbers that are in some cases extraneous and in other cases only part of the story to try and justify their, um, quite frankly, immoral position about uh, equal pay, right? Their anti-equal pay position. So the, the women's national team episode leads me to believe they will never uh, see the um, oh and, and the DA move. Okay, so then you have the women's national team thing, and then let's talk about the DA move immediately after Crossfire wins um, wins you know some sort of uh, at least in, in the language uh, success at the FIFA uh, Dispute Resolution Council um, in terms of. Uh, solidarity payments, basically what the ruling said was that Crossfire, there's no mechanism for them to collect the solidarity payment owed them that should have been paid to them by Tottenham Hotspur. However, there is definitely in FIFA statutes, because they their record keeping wasn't shoddy as U.S. soccer had claimed. Yeglin had spent, uh, based on, on the, uh, the, 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 the uh, records that Crossfire did, diligently kept, uh, somewhere between two and a half and three years in their system, whereas he'd spent about a year in the Sounders youth system before uh, elevated to the first team, and they collected the entire uh, solidarity payment. Um, they collected the entire training compensation, and uh, solidarity payments won't follow the player uh, throughout his... Uh, and he's now been moved a couple times, right? He's at Newcastle now. So um, that was followed up by this DA decision, which... Um, relegated Crossfire to the B division on the Pacific Coast, even though they finished ahead of the three MLS teams that are st that are still in Division A uh, or in the new Division A of uh, of this DA structure. So, um, and by the way, uh, Crossfire's attorneys have told me um, that there are other potential remedies that they're looking into um, uh, uh, for the, on the solidarity payment and training compensation issue. So if uh, U.S. soccer doesn't think they may that they're not going to get hit with more legal action potentially because of that specific issue. They're they're kidding themselves. So I would say those two things: the solidarity payment issue slash the handling of the DA, and then they're just absolutely um, head in the sand, uh, myopic view towards the women's national team. Uh, and I bet there were people in soccer house. I know they they tried to embrace the victory, or maybe they wanted the U.S. women to win, win because they thought that they could spin it for their own purposes. But there are probably people right now in Soccer House saying, gosh, we wish Spain had knocked them out in the round of 16, right? Right. Because this is, they're just in this position now where uh, they cannot win that public argument. And the worst thing is they do not recognize that they cannot win that public argument. They're, they're, getting, they're digging deeper and deeper in a hole every week. So, um, no, Daniel, I guess the sum, sum, uh, summary answer is uh, six months ago, I, I thought maybe they'd come around and there were going to be some pragmatic forces within that building in Chicago. Now I think they're just dug in, and the only way to affect change is to um, to change the entire board uh, at the next at the AGM where the where, where those seats come up. So uh, you know they they they're they're more dug in than ever, and the athletes' council is more dug in than ever, uh, etc. So until we're able to affect that change, and I think this is for another show, but affect the, the change of the role of the athletes council. Why is the athletes council? Why do players that essentially have some sort of business interests um, in the sport, in the current governance and landscape of the sport, given such an important role in determining uh, who is on, uh, who, who are officers and, and uh, on the board of governors of this organization, of this nonprofit organization. Let's, uh, let's keep that in mind. And I know we could do a whole week of shows on that. For sure. Um, I definitely, I know that there's a, there, there's, a, there's so many places to go in terms of fixing us, us soccer and, and what's going wrong. And what is just bizarre to me is, uh, of all of the hills to die on 
fighting the U.S. women's national team. I mean, what PR firm could you have called in this country that would have said, hey, do what you're doing right now. That's the best plan of action. I mean, I don't think there's a single PR firm in this country that would re- would take that case and go, hey, man, like this is a winnable fight. <laughs> I mean, it's just... It's crazy. So, look, Kardik, thanks for coming on the show today. We will have you back on again soon. There are so many things that we need to get in into, but I did want to take a quick look today at um, NISA and why it's different on some levels. And yes, it's new. Yes, it's got a long way to go, but there are there are some some uh, some positive seeds there that, if watered correctly, I think could be uh, very good for for the clubs in this country. So, thanks for coming on, sharing your thoughts. Uh, look forward to having you back on soon and uh, thanks for joining us today great thank you daniel that is carter christianer uh really appreciate him uh spending some time with us today and uh going over uh what he's seeing on the ground as well as throughout american soccer as always you can watch the show on facebook.com forward slash wrkmn or at danielworkman.com follow me on twitter or instagram at daniel workman hit me up dms are open Thanks for tuning in. We'll see everybody again tomorrow.